Welcome to our business deep dive on WKXL. I'm Matt Robeson, and with me, as always, is the host of Motley Fool Money, the number one stock investing radio show in America, Chris Hill. Chris, welcome back to WKXL. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Great to see you. One of the great privileges of doing all of this over Zoom nowadays, not that I'm in love with the pandemic, is that we get to actually see our radio guests without dragging them into the studio. All right. As always, so much going on uh, in the world of business, investing, and economics. Let's jump right into it. So initial public offerings, madness. Um, there have been some really fascinating ones recently. And uh, you were pointing out to me that Airbnb is now worth more, according to the stock market, than Marriott, Hyatt, and Hilton combined. DoorDash is now worth more than Ford Motors and General Motors combined. So I don't have a scientific way of asking you this. What the heck? Does this make a lot of sense to you? No, I think that's the question a lot of people are asking when they, you know, last week we saw the IPOs for both Airbnb and DoorDash. We knew there was a lot of excitement going in to both of those IPOs. At the end of their first days of trading, though, it was still amazing to see just how big these companies are in terms of what, you know, how does the stock market value these companies? And as you said, uh, they're bigger than um, their competitors. Obviously, DoorDash is not an automaker, but they are very much uh, dependent on auto. So I think that's a good point of comparison. I, I, I think it, it makes sense. And it's also a little crazy. I think it makes sense when you consider what the stock, stock market has done in 2020, the enthusiasm around particularly tech-driven businesses, DoorDash, um, you know, for anyone who's had food delivered, I mean, DoorDash is the dominant player in this space. They basically have 50% market share. So Uber Eats, all the other local delivery services, they all pale in comparison to just how big DoorDash is within that industry. In the case of Airbnb, um, I don't know if you've had the chance to use it. I've done it a few times going on vacation. Um, it's worked out pretty well. It's a great platform and they've made investments to improve it over time. Um, where, so, you know, the, you factor in all the enthusiasm, everything I just said, yeah, it makes sense that they would have big IPOs. Where this gets a little crazy for me is in looking at the valuation. DoorDash, uh, for all of their success and all the things that they are trying to do, they're trying to be innovative in the ways that they partner up with restaurants. Like they're, they're, they're not standing still. So I give them credit for that. But a year from now, is food delivery writ large going to be as big as it was in 2020? I don't know that it is. I think a lot of people are itching to go out to restaurants. Um, a lot of restaurants uh, don't like the cut that DoorDash is taking from them. So they are incentivizing people to come pick up the food themselves. So I think there are enough question marks about DoorDash that that's one of those stocks that I would not personally invest in. Airbnb is a good business. Uh, I think I would invest in it if the valuation wasn't so high. Um, one of the things we always say at The Motley Fool is, it's a lot more difficult to be a public company than it is to be 
a private company. You have so many more things you have to deal with, including those quarterly reports you have to put out and dealing with questions from analysts. So in general, we like to see how companies perform for a couple of quarters before we rush in and buy shares. So uh, it'll be interesting to see three months from now how both of these companies do on their first earnings report and how they deal with some tough questions from Wall Street. Um, I'm more optimistic about the future of Airbnb than I am about DoorDash. Um, But in in some ways, it's, it's not at all crazy that they had these big IPOs. It's an interesting contrast because it seems like the market is sort of looking at the same set of facts with Airbnb and DoorDash and sort of deciding to ignore something inconvenient in the short term versus the long term in each case. In the case of Airbnb, obviously, there's been a disruption to the demand for uh, mobile, book-it-yourself, peer-to-peer, staying at a a hotel substitute that's their core business model. But the market seems to be saying, okay, let's ignore that. In the long run, we think that this is a valuable business space to be in and that they're well-positioned. It's sort of the opposite with DoorDash, where they're saying, you know what, let's ignore the fact that maybe they're on a little bit of a sugar high during the pandemic. We still think that the party's going to keep rolling in the long term. So it sounds like you're saying you see some, both of those theses have some vulnerability, but you're you're a little bit more bullish on, on the basic story from Airbnb, that long run trajectory. Absolutely. And I think one of the things Airbnb success has pointed out is the, the price of hotel rooms. Um, I, you know, I think long-term uh, Marriott, just to pick one of those hotel chains, I think Marriott is in generally a good position, in part because the price of their stock has been knocked down. Um, but every hotel, I think, needs to get a lot more creative in terms of what they are charging. I mean, part of what uh, it succeeds uh, for Airbnb is the value proposition that they create, particularly for groups. You know, if you're just a business person traveling by yourself, you're absolutely going to lock into a hotel room. That just makes sense. If you're a family of four or more, or you're getting together with a group of friends, uh, it is so much more economical, all things being equal, to look to Airbnb than to try and book a bunch of hotel rooms. Yeah, it's interesting. And with the DoorDash thesis, it's almost like the thinking, and I don't want to like read into the minds of market analysts, but it's almost like the thinking is once people get a taste of the food delivery system, uh, they will be hooked. And I, I mean, that's kind of an interesting lead into the next topic I wanted to bring up, which is the earning, the investor call that Disney had, uh, which was sort of exciting for geeks, right? They promised something on the order of like 10 new Star Wars streaming shows. I think about the same number of Marvel-based streaming shows. And so as a result, Disney stock went up 15% last week. It hit an all-time high. Um, And so it seems like what we're hearing, you know, in the in the Disney case is there is a big bet going here in streaming video. We talked last week about some of the betting going on about what the future of entertainment movie theaters looks like. Um, so, you know, it, it looks like that's that's sort of what's emerging is a very dynamic new ecosystem with a lot of companies jockeying for position in the streaming space. Is is that basically what you're seeing? Yes, and I think that it is, in the case of Disney, uh, it's worth remembering that they launched Disney Plus, their video streaming service, about a year ago. Uh, 
when they launched it, it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 18 months to a, to two years later than they had originally planned it. When they started talking about this, I think maybe 2012, 2013, something like that, they were looking to launch this earlier than they did. And the thinking along the way was, all right, if they're delaying it, it's because they want to get it to be as good as possible. And I think that proved to be the case. Uh, as someone who enjoys movies and as someone who's a Disney shareholder, that was my thinking along the way, like, well, this better be worth it when they launch it. And I think they did a good job. What they announced last week, and you touched on this, Matt, is an investment in that streaming service that I think far surpassed what people were expecting. It was clear that they had some hits on their hand, um, not just with the catalog of movies that they own, the Star Wars franchise, the Marvel Universe. The Mandalorian as an original series is a huge hit and a huge driver of subscriptions for them. So I think the combination of Disney coming out and saying, we're going to invest even more money in this. We already have nearly 90 million subscribers. And we think by 2024, that number is going to be closer to 250 million subscribers. The third factor is the price increase. Because one of the things that Disney did was very smart when they first launched this series, their bet was, we want to have a low price point to get people into this, as many people as possible, because we would rather start at a low price and slowly raise that price over time than come in with a price uh, much higher. And so what they did was, they basically came out a year ago and said, our subscription is going to be basically half of what a Netflix subscription is. So their third announcement last week was, starting in March 2021, it's going to go from $6.99 a month to $7.99 a month. And you, you got 90 million subscribers? Guess what? That's $90 million more million per month. Um, so I think uh, the investment in new content, um, the very clear message that this is the future of Disney as a business, um, I think that's why we saw the stock doing what it did last Friday. Mm. Yeah, and it does really harken back to that uh, DoorDash strategy of getting people hooked, building your subscription base. Um, and then, I mean, boy, it, it's a nice business model to be in if you can have this barely noticeable price increase and mint a billion dollars a year in, in extra revenue. That seems like a pretty good deal. So, you know, back decades ago, closer to the dawn of the internet, the, 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 the big kind of trite saying was content is king, which was a way of saying, you know, what you've got matters a lot less than the interface. Although you've also seen some of these other streaming services, HBO, for example, get dinged for uh, having a kind of balky interface for consumers. Do you think that's sort of the fundamental driver in streaming here? Is that, is that sort of the grounds of competition that we're going to see among these various services is um, content is king and whoever has the best content, uh, the most kind of uh, uh, visible content is going to come out on top? Uh, yes, although I, I, I like that you mentioned the interface because I think that that's what we're seeing with we certainly saw that with Disney Plus a year ago. I know that when I bought my year-long subscription to Disney Plus, part of my thinking was, boy, I hope the interface is good and it's very clean and it, and it works great. I think that's what Peacock um, is going to be going through. Um, I haven't used Peacock, which is the NBC uh, streaming service, uh, NBC owned by parent company Comcast. So... Uh, if Peacock, uh, with their next move, can get a lot of people in, 
can demonstrate, hey, not just we've got good content, um, but we've got content that you want to see. And by the way, this is the only place you can see it unless you decide you want to buy it from Amazon. Uh, yeah, I think that's, uh, that's going to be an interesting test that we see in January because Peacock uh, in January, uh, for anyone who has Netflix and is a big fan of the show, The Office, um, uh, that's been one of the most popular shows on Netflix for years. And in January, the streaming rights are going to go from Netflix to Peacock. Peacock paid for them, paid handsomely for them. But it is going to be interesting to see if Peacock is able to get a lot of fans of that show to start using their streaming service. And then once they're there, do they want to pay for what they get? From an investment standpoint, would you bet on the whole kind of streaming sector right now? Um, because there's going to just be a growing pie and there's probably going to be a, a number of winners here? Or is it more a matter of um, there are going to be some clear winners and losers and you have to bet a little bit more cautiously from an investor standpoint? Uh, one of the regular uh, analysts on Motley Fool Money is a guy named Jason Moser. And Jason uh, likes to take what he calls the basket approach to investing in, in certain areas. He'll look at uh, an area like digital payments and say, I think the future of digital payments is big. I don't want to try and pick the one company that I think is a winner. I'm going to buy a little bit, a few shares of four different companies that are in this space. And that's going to be my digital payments basket. I think you could do a whole lot worse than to say, okay, Netflix is probably going to keep doing what they're doing. Disney is doing well, even with the stock at an all-time high. I think the future of Disney is very bright. And Comcast, between uh, their nascent streaming business with Peacock and the underlying business of supplying um, you know, uh, service to everyone's homes or as many homes as they can get, uh, you could do a whole lot worse than to buy a few shares of those three and just say, you know what? It doesn't matter which one comes in first. I've got all three. You know, of course, all of these services are, for the most part, I should say, are attached to awfully big companies with a lot of cash uh, to, I don't want to say burn, but certainly to invest in trying to build those subscriber bases, build the brand of their service. Um, you know, you're talking about your, your Time Warners here and your Disney's here. Um, so does that for the time being, talking about the uh, Disney price increase that's on the horizon, of course, Netflix just announced a price increase as well. It seems like, you know, there's a little bit of a runway there for these companies to continue to subsidize their subscribers. But eventually, if they're looking to replace the ecosystem of the theater experience, for the most part, and other parts of Americans' entertainment dollar, it seems like that price increase pressure will continue. And at some point, the runway runs out. Do you have any thoughts about, about that, about um, what we'll see in terms of the, the pricing model for these kinds of services over the next five years? I think it is very telling that Peacock is starting out at $5 a month because it's part of a large profitable company in Comcast. They have the ability to do that. That's a smart strategy. Disney did the same thing to say, you know what? We've got a lot of other ways that our overall company makes money, so we don't have to depend on Disney Plus to bring in a ton of money right out of the gate. Netflix is at a point where their pricing power is, I think, a little bit diminished, or I should say they don't have as much ability to raise prices 
as the other two companies, in part because the other two companies are starting at a much lower base. It wouldn't surprise me at all if Disney executed more price increases in the next five years than Netflix did, simply because it's still single digits per month. So a year from now, Matt, you and I could be talking about, hey, Disney just announced another increase and it's going from $7.99 a month to $8.99 a month. They've got more runway to do that. So does Comcast with Peacock. Speaking of uh, price increases, uh, I, I, you had pointed out to me that shares of DraftKings are up 350% since the start of the year, which, you know, as you noted, is kind of remarkable considering that sports were completely thrown out of kilter in 2020, um, perhaps worse than uh, other aspects of our lives. Um, so what does this kind of a price run up say about first the underlying uh, market proposition of sports as an entertainment enterprise in America? And also separately, I know I'm loading a lot on you here, but separately, uh, the business model of, uh, of sports betting. It really is incredible what DraftKings has done this year. Uh, you know, earlier in the year uh, on Motley Fool Money, when we would talk about DraftKings, I would usually chime in with, and just wait till sports return, because it's really incredible that the stock has done this well when the baseball season was cut dramatically. Um, you know, uh, football was very much up in the air. College sports, the NCAA basketball tournament, just completely gone. So I, I, I think it speaks well of DraftKings management that they were able to make their platform so enticing that they were able to still bring people in in this very untraditional year. I think the landscape of sports betting is going to be very interesting to watch uh, over the next few years. And um, uh, I, I know I'm going to upset some people with this comparison, so I apologize. I just can't think of a better one. I think it's going to be interesting to see on a state-by-state -state level if the next few years for sports betting is like the last few years for marijuana. And what I mean by that is and, and you know this from your political background, Matt. I mean, it, it, every couple of years, we see more and more states legalizing marijuana to varying degrees. Either they're decriminalizing it, they're legalizing medical marijuana or recreational marijuana. It really has been this steady drumbeat. Uh, all you have to do is, is look at a map of the United States uh, overlaid with marijuana legalization. And you see, I mean, we're we're only down to, I think, maybe 10 or 12 states that, that don't really have um, legalization um, in the way that most states do. It wouldn't surprise me if we saw a similar methodical ramp up to more states legalizing sports betting for the reasons that any state would legalize anything. And that is, of course, revenue. If you think that you can make revenue off of it, then as a state, it's your duty to your taxpayers to take a look at whether or not you should legalize. I was looking at a chart earlier uh, this morning of tax revenue in the state of Illinois. And the two graphs were uh, tax revenue from alcohol sales and tax revenue from marijuana sales. And they're almost even. Uh, the, wow. the state of Illinois is bringing in almost as much money off of taxi, uh, taxes from related to marijuana as they are from alcohol. Um, to get back to DraftKings, I think it, it um, I would rather be DraftKings than be a traditional casino company. 
uh, unless casino companies, uh, and I'm talking about the big ones like MGM and Las Vegas Sands and that sort of thing, the big publicly traded ones, um, I think DraftKings is more nimble. I think they have more optionality when it comes to sports betting. And uh, it's not to say that the traditional casinos can't pivot and and make their own version of an app to enable people to bet and what the casinos have as a lever they can pull that DraftKings doesn't have is there's no DraftKings resort. I'm not going to build up DraftKings points that are going to get me uh, an upgraded hotel room or suite the next time I go to Las Vegas. Um, but uh, I, I think DraftKings, even with the run-up they've had, I think this is absolutely going to be a stock to watch for the next few years. Do you think to some degree the market is also perceiving some of the revenue pressures on the underlying sports as a factor here? I mean, if you just look at the ratings numbers for the NBA, for example, and I'm a big basketball fan, and I was fully expecting that their experiment with the bubble was going to be absolutely gangbusters ratings gold, given the pent up demand for live sports content, but you really kind of saw the opposite. So, you know, just seeing that kind of revenue pressure you know, more broadly across the sports landscape in the 90 seconds or so that we have left. Is that a, is that a factor here? Do you, do you see the sports leagues increasingly looking to partner with entities like DraftKings who can provide them uh, future revenue sources? Absolutely. And we're already seeing uh, owners of different uh, sports teams uh, in basketball, in the NFL, who are looking to partner with the DraftKings of the worlds for in-stadium betting. Um, it, it just makes sense. Uh, I, I think everything is up for grabs. I think that's one of the lessons of the pandemic. We saw it with restaurants. We're going to see it with professional sports as well. Um, the, any new way they can make revenue, they're going to try and do it. Well, it's absolutely fascinating. And of course, um, you know, speaking from a, from a more traditionalist standpoint, uh, I know it's created a lot of distress on the part of sports fans, but, you know, gosh, I guess it's about the same distress that uh, traditionalists have had about uh, some of these changes we're seeing with marijuana that you were pointing to as well. It just seems like you're saying this is the wave of the future. We should probably get used to it. Absolutely. And let's face it, as long as the Boston Celtics are making the playoffs, everything's going to be okay. Couldn't agree more. Well, with that, this has been our business deep dive with the host of Motley Fool Money, Chris Hill. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you next time. Thanks, man.